Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Anthropology. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Jackson, lecturer in anthropology in Victoria University. We'll be talking about his book, Worlds of Care, The Emotional Lives of Fathers Caring for Children with Disabilities, published by the University of California Press in 2021. Thank you very much, Aaron, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, it's my pleasure. Um, so often, you know, there's, I often follow a formula uh, in these episodes where I for, first ask my guests to tell us about themselves, then I ask how they arrived at their books. But your book reads as one where these questions are intimately entangled and it seems like much more than a book project. So could you introduce yourself and the book to us? Yeah. So uh, my interest in my research is grounded in my life as a caregiver. Um, My son, Takoda, was born in 2011. And when he was four months old, he started having multiple seizures a day, um, grand mal seizures. So they were very frightening. We had no idea what we were doing or what was going on. Um, And so very early on, he was diagnosed with global developmental delay and hypotonia, which is low muscle tone. And then later down the track with a severe uh, intellectual disability. So naturally, you know, I was very interested in parents' experiences, caring for children with disabilities. I began uh, reading everything that I could on the subject. And the more I read, the more I realized that fathers were rarely the focus in the context of primary caregiving and even less so in the context of caring for children under these circumstances. So that was really the starting point for my research. I wanted to know how parents find a new kind of normal, um, I guess. Um, So on a personal level, uh, I was trying to find some perspective that would help me in my own path as a father. And um, yeah, and so the book grew out of my uh, PhD dissertation and research I carried out in the States 
Uh, it was published in April this year with UC Press, and it's a part of the um, public series in anthropology, which is aimed at making scholarship accessible to wider reading publics beyond the discipline and to intervene in issues of, of public importance. And so the book tells a story about parents, uh, particularly fathers, and how they go about making sense of their lives in the context of intensive caregiving, specifically for children with severe cognitive and developmental disabilities. Um, and so obviously, yes, there's a very strong uh, autoethnographic component to the, the work as a caregiver myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very helpful to know. And you mentioned your focus on fatherhood. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about your approach to caregiving through fatherhood and masculinity. What is at stake in focusing on fathers? Yeah, so my focus is on the effect caregiving has on the development of caring identities. Um, Caregiving is difficult. It can be very unglamorous work. And I found that um, you know, gender-dominant conforming ideas about how men are supposed to act and what they're supposed to do can really aggravate the difficulty um, for men. You know, so men are supposed to be dominant. They're supposed to be in control. They're supposed to um, avoid emotional vulnerability. And for the men that I came to know, fears over being seen as vulnerable or judged as emotionally weak often posed the greatest challenges at least in the beginning of their journeys, to being the fathers that their children and their families need them to be. And so um, I found that, you know, through the practice of caregiving, um, this can really undermine their confidence in who they were and change the way they relate to themselves and others, um, often making it impossible for them to continue acting in the same ways or continue holding the same values. And so uh, one father I write about in the book, Earl, um, he spoke pointedly about how his uh, personal history of gendered experiences had ill-prepared him for fatherhood in this context. Um, so early on after his son's diagnosis, he said he threw himself into taking care of the things that men do, um, namely mm-hmm. breadwinning, <laughs> completely neglecting the practical hands-on aspects of caregiving, um, essentially hiding from his grief over lost expectations by shutting down and and distancing himself emotionally from his family. But over time, the intimacy he established with his son began to press upon his identity as a father and he began to discard certain gender values and norms that no longer felt livable under these circumstances and that had up until then offered a hiding place from, from feeling Um, So he said his definition of success changed uh, from being about uh, winning, you know, uh, making money, uh, attaining status, to being about relationships with other people, helping other people flourish. And so he started a father's support group to help men that were in his position. And, you know, he came to see that by helping others grow, he became more responsive to his own needs to grow. you know, he said, Zachary doesn't, you know, need me more than any other dad. He just needs me in different ways. And we have to allow ourselves to grow into meeting those needs and being there for our children. And I think that applies to parents across the board. So by reframing masculinity and doing gender differently, um, by, you know, becoming engaged 
empathetic, committed and involved over the long haul, um, responsible for themselves and for others, and also in their attempt to create communities that are based on a recognition of our connection, our interbeing. They establish grounds for creating a life of care. And um, I think in doing that, they contribute to cultural change and the slow process of refiguring uh, social practices that perpetuate social inequalities. Mm-hmm, definitely. And you show us really well how fathers just make and remake themselves. Uh, and in your book, self-making becomes a temporal orientation that is at the same time embodied and intersubjective as you just illustrated through um, the story of Earl. So can you speak to the temporalities of self-making and care? Yeah, so I discussed this sense of um, disorientation that parents experience upon entering their worlds of disability and becoming caregivers. Um, You know, this is partly from falling out of sync with the practices and activities of those around them. Uh, But there's also uh, a temporal dimension to this that stems from the perceived mismatch between the past and present, the present that was supposed to lead somewhere else. And so this, um, this throws into relief all kinds of interesting things in terms of processes of, of selfhood and identity. So there's some great research that um, identifies important events like the moment of a child's diagnosis or telling friends and family about a child's disability that Uh, helps define the ways parents identify with the child's disability. But what I focus on is how these key moments are experienced as already mattering in particular ways according to one's uh, past experiences and future anticipations. And so Earl, um, who I was just speaking about, he grew up caring for his quadriplegic father. The strain Mm -hmm. of that led to the dissolution of his family when he was a small boy. Um, and so this coloured Zachary's moment of diagnosis in a very particular way. You know, he was terrified. According to him, he had lost his childhood to his father's accident and now here he was again um, in this position of, of caregiving. But, you know, the past also gives us opportunities for making new connections to the present and making new meanings. Um, so later on in life, Earl explained that his childhood caring for his father prepared him for his life as Zachary's caregiver and gave him perspective. So these temporal movements uh, backwards and forwards, you know, they hold possibilities for maintaining a sense of self-continuity across time. Um, Wayne, another father in my book, you know, he felt a sense of comfort when his boys were diagnosed with autism because it was a moment of profound self-revelation through light on his own past experiences Mm -hmm. of feeling different from others, uh, which ended up leading to his own self-diagnosis of autism and a whole new way of understanding his past and present circumstances as a caregiver for his two boys. So the present can reshape the past with later connections, can colour it with new meanings. And so these, um, these temporal shiftings allow people to recreate an understanding of their life in accordance with the demands of the present and the future it anticipates. So, yeah, I found the interplay of these temporalities as vital to how parents go about creating a sense of continuity across time and after disruption. Wow. And thinking through 
temporality in this way really illustrates how fathers settle into relational worlds of disability in your words. Um, so what do these forms of relationality and attunement tell us about care? Um, they tell us that care is a way of interacting with others. Um, it's a way of situating um, oneself in the world. Um, you know, I see caregiving as something that exists in potential. Um, you know, it's grounded in the body's capacity for attunement and response. So it's a part of our social being. So, um, you know, our fundamental connection and the primacy of attuned empathy, which I write a fair bit about, are important aspects of, of care. You know, care is familiar to all of us and it's something that we often take for granted because it's something that we need to survive and flourish. But the parents in my book, they really speak to the importance of our relationality at the heart of being and this profound sense that we become who we are in and through our relationships to other people. Um, and as other care theorists have pointed out, care also consists of inquiry and action. Um, so we need to gain knowledge about the other in order to care for them. You know, we need to know who the person is, their um, strengths and limitations, their needs, so we're in a better position to respond to their needs. But this knowledge doesn't have to be proposition it doesn't have to have propositional content you know we can sync up um, in ways that seem mysterious which can uh, i believe cut through our misperceptions and breed clearer imaginative possibilities for the way we relate to others we have no experience with and i think parents intuit this you know quite strongly which is why they often facilitate interactions between their children and others in order to break through the discomfort that people feel when they meet someone who doesn't meet their expectations on how one should look or act, um, you know, in order to allow their children to be felt, um, to deepen the way people experience them, um, you know, both in their singularity and familiarity as well. There's one father I, I write about in the book, Raul, and um, his daughter Mia is 13. She's nonverbal, very gregarious, and sociable and um, she loves heading with him into strip mall places where there's lots of social activity. And if she feels like saying hello, she stretches her arm out in a wheelchair to greet you. And early on, early on in the piece, you know, Raul found that um, people, you know, were often, often felt uncomfortable and they would ignore her and this made me a cry. And so he started um, anticipating this and, um, you know, telling the people of her intentions. And he said in this way, people would often enter into a more intimate exchange with Mia. Um, and so, yeah, I talk about this, how this is, um, this is a, a public form of caring as well. You know, he's trying to change spaces of social belonging by deepening the way people experience his daughter. Um, yeah, and these forms of like public care are stitched into kind of everyday life. Yeah, I found the public care aspect of your work really refreshing and I want to learn more about that. But before, I'm also very curious about the moral aspect of this um, form of relation. How does intersubjectivity inform caregivers' moral attunements and agency? So um, the parents in my book, they're engaged in the practice of day-to-day -day intensive caregiving 
and they uh, find out through the embodied forms of communication that I write about that there's you know more to our interactions and our intimacy with others than uh, language and cognitive sharing. You know, hold, you know, if we're both holding the same things in our heads at the same time. So I think these new ways of uh, attuning to the world to take care of their kids has the potential to retrain what they habitually attend and respond to in ways that um, open ethical possibilities for rethinking what it is to be a man, what it is to be a father, and to live a good life. And so personally, I found myself relating to spaces differently as Dakota's caregiver through being more other-oriented. I developed a perspective that was um, more sensitive to our differences I acquired a bunch of hands-on skills that were necessary for taking care of him. So I think all these things are significant in altering the way that caregivers are attuned to the situation and and um, the ways they're drawn to respond in any given situation, which inevitably pervades our moral concerns and our moral identities because it changes how we can act in the world, um, you know, how we're solicited to act. And so from this point of view, um, moral agency can be seen as a function of our habits of perception. And these changes can determine full-blooded courses of action. Um, many parents underwent career changes and entered helping professions um, as carers of value became more central to their lives. So one father in the book, you know, he left his high-tech business and became a special education advocate. Um, repurposing all the skills and knowledge that he had acquired over the years, navigating the special education system for his daughter. Another father, a firefighter, shifted his attention to delivering emergency preparedness workshops for those with disabilities and their families. So, you know, they, they know what to do in case of a fire or something. Um, another couple turned their attention to issues of diversity and inclusion and um, helping families to speak English as a first language helping them access, um, you know, resources to help them in their lives as caregivers. So, yeah, I think these career changes speak strongly to this moral reorientation that arises from caregiving. Absolutely. And I want to turn to how you wrote the book. So, you know, even as you discuss these stories, you're always, I mean, they're not stories, but you're always a part of um, these worlds that you describe. And in the book as well, you discuss your positionality as something that often shifted between your role as caregiver and researcher. So what challenges did these shifts pose for you during the fieldwork and writing? And what did you learn from them? Um, it did pose some challenges. <laughs> uh, being an insider, a, um, a fellow caregiver, you know, it was helpful in the sense that people I found were more willing to share their lives with me. You know, one father explicitly said that you know, he wouldn't be sharing with me if I weren't a caregiver myself. So it was definitely valuable, I think, in terms of access. Um, yeah, so in that sense, you know, a lot of the time during field work, these identities coexisted quite peacefully. But sometimes my role as a re researcher, yeah, could intrude in negative ways. At one point, things got really awkward with um, with one participant early on um, when I had to more firmly anchor myself in my role as a researcher. And um, this had a bit of a cooling effect 
on the relationship, uh, which I talk about in the introduction of my book, actually. Um, yeah, but I think these identities can be particularly oppositional to one another at academic conferences and during Q&As when you're required to talk theoretically about things like disability and personhood and your emotions get involved, um, especially when, you know, when you're talking about your own child. And um, also during writing up as well, you know, writing about people you've come to know really well and that maybe you have a lot of respect or admiration for as a caregiver and putting things down on paper that you know they'll read and that you might not ordinarily ever say to their face. So that's incredibly awkward as far as these relationships go, you know, post-field work. But um, I think what I learned is that my uh, own story and self-understanding um, as a caregiver, they're, they're in inseparable from the picture that emerges from this research about how fathers create their worlds of care. You know, the discoveries and disclosures at the heart of my own experience as caregiving for Dakota provided insights that guided my um, observations and interpretations and, and what I came to learn during field work. So mostly inseparable, yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off mm -hmm. yeah um that comes across really clearly across the book um and your approach to genre in this vein is really striking so as a stakeholder in debates about disability and not only as a researcher you use creative nonfiction as a communicative device and i'm curious about what playing with genre in this way did for the book and for you um i liked that creative nonfiction gave me a degree of uh, flexibility and freedom while writing while staying obviously true to the stories i was telling um i liked that it um allowed me to give the narrative a sense of immediacy between the reader and the story but most importantly the reason mm -hmm. i chose creative nonfiction. um was because when it comes to the, the population of, of um, people I'm writing about, those with severe disabilities that don't have language, um, as a caregiver myself, I thought it was the best medium for capturing the uh, delicate and intimate connections between carers and their children. And also those expressions of personality, attitude, mood that convey what it means to be human. So that was the that was the biggest draw to me using creative nonfiction. 
You also shared with us that journaling and keeping diaries have been parts of your writing process. Could you tell us more about the role of diary keeping again for you and for the book? So, yeah, journaling uh, complemented my uh, fieldwork notes. I began very early on in the piece journaling my emotions and um, jokes and reactions to things. Um, and I think, you know, this kind of data, it's, it's useful in that it provides access for us to examine perhaps um, unconscious processes that I came to realize added a lot to my understanding of the, um, the psychocultural dimensions of my world. And also help me, um, you know, better understand my fieldwork relations, so I could write down my own emotional reactions to a particular situation, which then help me understand clearer my participants' reactions. And this helped me work through some of my thinking and reactions that were perhaps interfering with my empathetic communications with others. Um, and then, you know, and sometimes I could bring these. Uh, observations and these notes into conversation with intimate and trusted others and and talk about them as well. So I think this kind of journaling, you know, my attunement to my own inner life allowed me to collect data that opened up avenues for more clearly understanding the relationship between um, culture and unconscious. Um, and this is important for my book, um, you know, especially since I spent so much time writing about the the pre-reflective habitual side to moral life. Um, you know, how the felt present situation is kind of a source for, uh, a source of guidance in, in moral life. So yeah, it really helped with that, the journaling. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, as you mentioned, the book is part of a public anthropology series. And, you know, we discussed a little bit how you handle the ethnographic writing, but your ability to write theoretically was also a part of the book that really stood out to me. For example, you handle like really hefty theoretical subjects like phenomenology, um, intersubjectivity, and you articulate these um, you know, hefty theoretical points of view so clearly. So I'm curious about, you know, what was your approach to making theory accessible in the book yeah so that was um it was actually uh, a lot more dense as you can imagine for um the dissertation of course because you have to have all that theoretical scaffolding that um <laughs> i had to cull for a book that was a part of a, a public series in anthropology you know what i mean so yeah there was a lot of theoretical scaffolding that i culled in the revision process um and I actually felt found that really helpful in terms of, um, you know, deepening my understanding of some of the subject matter too, if that makes sense. Not that I didn't understand it, but, you know, there's so much that you kind of take for granted mm-hmm. um, and that your peers take for granted and, and terminology we use. And I felt like by, um, you know, having to revise that for the book um, can really help. Um, deepen your understanding on the stuff that you're writing about and be clearer about it. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I've kept just the essential bits. Um, yeah. I said there was a lot more of Martin Heidegger and stuff in the <laughs> in its earlier iteration. 
<laughs> I can imagine, but you know, hearing this, I'm sure will be very helpful to our readers who are uh, maybe transitioning from dissertation to book like myself. <laughs> so it's very assuring to hear that, you know, getting rid of some of that is actually can actually be more helpful at times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and everyone um, was so yeah. helpful to you in offering guidance with that. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Um I want to turn back to public caring. So you mentioned in our conversation that you know, the book um, is a form of public caring. And I'm curious about what kinds of public care work do you hope your book will do as it meets readers and goes out in the world? Yeah, so my research is, you know, obviously it's very um, close to home and I see the book, yeah, I call it a, a public form of personal care, which is a term I borrow from Eva Kide. Um, so, yeah, it's an effort on my end to socialize the world, to meet people like Dakota, um, you know, who have um, cognitive and developmental differences. I guess I hope it uh, inspires readers to think about disability in their own lives um, and how they interpret disability and act towards uh, others with disabilities. Um, you know, research doesn't have to be fortified with uh, policy suggestions. It can do a lot of good. Um, still by reaching hearts and minds. And so in terms of its public value, I guess I hope it's useful, um, useful for caregivers and the like, but I also help, um, hope it helps people meet others more sensitively and to realize our profound connection. Yeah, I think the book is very well situated to do that work. Um, as we close, I want to ask, what is next for you? So I'll continue um, at the moment teaching anthropology. Um, I'm currently also doing a master's in education. So we'll see what uh, avenues that opens up for me in the future. Wow, that is very exciting. And we'll be looking forward to see uh, what happens in the future as well. <laughs> Thank you very much, Aaron, for joining us and for your insights. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Aliza Arjan. This discussion of worlds of care, the emotional lives of fathers caring for children with disabilities, published by the University of California Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network, Anthropology. Thank you for listening. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.